Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This episode is a conversation between Pastor Nick Gibson and myself, Andy Schmidt. As you're listening, keep in mind that this is a repost of the Optive Theology podcast. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I am here with Pastor Nick Gibson, um, and we're back. We're going to do part two of our uh, uh, little abortion series. It's kind of just a part one and a part two, so it's not really a mini series. Yeah. But, uh, but if you listen to this and you have like questions that we don't answer and stuff like that, then, I mean, people aren't going to stop talking about this tomorrow. This is going to be right. through the summer, sadly. Um, but we have been waiting 50 years to debate this, I think, if you're on the pro-life side of it. Yeah. So send in stuff. And then also, we'll you know, we'll try yeah. to get a smart lady in here on maybe uh, a Q- right. Q&A one if we get enough questions. But there's got to be at least 10 or 12 questions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, just like what you just said, the, the, the reason I think... We don't have a woman on this one, so it is just Nick and myself talking about this, and I know that that can bring about frustration um, with with people. But I would ask that you just listen through and you know send in feedback if you think that something that we said was was uh, outrageous or, or out of out of line. Like, I mean, I'm I'm sure. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as as the Optive Theology podcast goes, if you listen to this and you think that what Nick is saying is is crazy, like I would. I would love to have you on the podcast to have a conversation about this, not because I want to see a debate, but I think that civil discourse is important. And I think if, if it goes the right way, I think that'd be. Yeah. I I just, I think I just want to say that, um, First of all, we, I think you and I have talked about this before that we just categor- I categorically reject the argument that you have to be of a particular interest group to have a moral view on something. I think that's a terrible logic and it's a really poor way to th- reason morally. I think it has the, it does have the positive property of saying, hey, people who have certain experiences tend to be less flippant about the experience. They tend to like feel the weight of it more accurately or can. But I, I, I just I categorically reject the idea that um, you have to experience something personally to have a moral view about it. I don't I don't have to be in a situation. I don't have to have been in a gunfight to have ethical views on what should happen in gunfights right. or in carrying weapons or owning them or using them in self-defense or not. Right. Yeah. There's all kinds of things I have that I have not done or been part of that I have moral views about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I, and I don't think those views are flippant. Right. Yeah. I also think that there's a treason of empathy that when you've been part of something and you have morally failed in it mm-hmm. or you have given yourself too much leeway and you think and then you now you have a um, you have a really strong incentive to justify yourself in whatever you did. And so people who like fell into like, you know, not super smart or like, let's say, let's say they had a, a number of premarital sexual relationships that were unwise, but they just, they did because they thought were fun. Don't lie to yourself that that doesn't put in your mind a number of incentives to justify premarital sex, that right. it's morally neutral or ambiguous. Right. And the fact that yeah. I didn't have premarital sex doesn't mean I can't have an opinion about it. Right. Right. I have the experience of resisting it. And that's a meaningful experience, just as I've had the experience of sitting with dozens of women struggling with unplanned pregnancies and even unwanted pregnancies. Right. I've walked through women. I've been in the delivery room delivering the baby uh, with a woman who had a unplanned pregnancy where the dad abandoned her, where I became the child's godfather. Like I, I've personally been imbe- embedded to the point where like I went to class in college carrying a African-American baby on my chest. Mm-hmm. 
to when I went to my education classes because it was my shift to babysit Danielle while her mom was doing student teaching and finishing her degree mm-hmm. so that she could finish her degree and provide for her child because I was that invested in the life of this child who basically this was a, this was a woman in my Christian ministry. Right. And she she was in the gospel choir and she started sleeping with the gospel choir director. He got her pregnant and abandoned her. And so all these white kids from the Christian fellowship that this woman was also a part of put together a babysitting schedule for um, more than a semester so that she could finish her last year of school. Right. So like I've 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 held I held this child at 2 a.m. when her mom was going crazy when she couldn't stop crying. So like I'm if people say I'm too flippant about this. They, they may not know me or have enough empathy towards me as well, or my wife or the other women in my life. I've talked about these things within mm. long detail. So I don't have, I don't have any, I don't blush at all yeah. to look at women in the face or any human person in the face and to say what I think the truth is. And the other thing is this, is that you've never been, if you're a woman, you're like, you can't talk about this. You're not a woman. Well, you know what? You've never been an aborted fetus, right? And I'm not sure you get to talk for, for fetuses that are being torn apart in the womb. Mm-hmm. And for their part, because that's who I'm really speaking for as much as I'm, I would, I would want to speak rightly for women. Mm-hmm. I'm really here to speak for all humans who are being killed in the womb. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, th- I don't think anybody can empathize with being torn limb from limb in the womb. Right. Does that make sense? So, yeah. 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 And I'll add um, from my perspective, because I do talk a bit in these podcasts in general, but my my mom almost aborted my older brother and she chose not to because of uh, a place in Madison called CareNet Pregnancy Center, which is what I consider to be the the opposite of Planned Parenthood. Um, they they basically tell it's what women, Planned Parenthood should have been. Yeah. They, they tell women what abortion actually is. They show them what it is. And then they, they also share the gospel with them. And so that's where my mom became a Christian and saved my brother's life. And uh, they're both believers and, and he's 26 and married now. And um on the other end of this, my youngest brother is adopted, and we chose to go that route, which is a, which is a route that you know there's a lot of people who want children who can't have them, and you know we've aborted sixty million babies in the past sixty years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you know those babies could have gone to those families who who wanted who wanted children but couldn't have them. So it's um, over a billion worldwide. Yeah. 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 And so I think, so that being said, that's not just, you know, yes, Nick and I have never had an abortion, but, but the abortion topic has impacted both of our lives in significant ways. And so we're gonna have a conversation about it. And and my wife has offered to more than one woman who is going to get an abortion that we would take their child. Right. Yeah. And and I was a hundred percent with her on it. Yeah. And in some cases was sitting with a woman too and said, we will absolutely take your child. We right. will take responsibility for the entire upbringing of your child. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you did it, if you're listening to this and I would suggest you go back to last week's podcast and listen to the first one before you come and listen to this one, because I think some of the things we're going to be talking about in this one are, are actually, you know, kind of built off of what we talked about in the last one. Um, we went through in the last one, several of the pro-choice arguments that you might hear and just how, how Christians and how uh, people who believe in the Bible and uh, should react and respond to those things. And then um, some of the philosophies and ideas that have gotten us to the point of, of as a, a culture where I think it's, I think there was a poll that was like 73% of Americans believe that abortion is okay. Like we've gotten to the point where, where we think that this is okay as a culture. And, um, 
And so what this one is going to be about is we're just going to be like diving even deeper into those ideas and, and into some of the main reasons why pro-choice people believe that murdering children is an okay, acceptable thing that we should put into law. And so with that being said, we can just get started. Um, one of the first things that I think we, one of the first things that we're going to talk about is how a lot of pro-choice people fail to see the, the connection between a mother and a, and a child, um, a, a moral connection between those two people, even like a biological connection. And so I guess I'll start it out by just saying, I guess, Nick, do you want to open us up into what that argument is and, and then kind of what, what we should actually think about a mother's connection to her child? Yeah. So, right. So there's essentially, there's two basic logical movements that pro-choice arguments make. And the first is that the relationship of the mother to her child is, does not constitute a moral obligation Mm -hmm. if the mother doesn't want it to. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this goes back to, um, Judith, Judith Jarvis, her article in public affairs in 1971 called the defense of abortion. It's one of the most cited, um, philosophy articles that there is in academic philosophy. And this yeah. is where the violinist argument comes from, right? Like if you woke up and you were attached by life support to this famous violinist and he just needed to borrow your kidneys for nine months, mm-hmm. you know, while um, he recovered from something, where you, are you obligated to provide life support to him for nine months? And her argument is no, mm-hmm. right? She makes other arguments in the article where she says, you know, like, you know, what about, because she thinks the violinist argument works in the case of like rape or incest. Like it, like or well, rape in particular, where like you didn't choose at all to be hooked up to this. She makes other arguments about like um, if a burglar comes into your house when you've taken precautions, mm-hmm. right? Do you have to like welcome that person, or can you tell them to leave? You know, right. or or even like you could even say the person's a vagrant, maybe not a burglar, maybe they're not going to steal from you, but they're going to just like live in your house, and you're like you can't live here. I don't have to take care of you. You coming right. in doesn't constitute a responsible relationship for me, mm-hmm. right? And um. So she said, this is a quote from her article, I've been arguing that no person is morally required to make large sacrifices to sustain the life of another who has not the right to demand them. Right? Yeah. So on one level, what she's saying is you need that th- this this assumption that most humans held throughout most of human history, that there is a natural relationship mm-hmm. of, of that's constituted between a mother and a child when a woman conceives a child. Mm-hmm. And that that relationship has certain responsibilities built into it, right? Now that I'm not saying that everybody has always believed that, because obviously people who exposed children and committed infanticide throughout the history of the ancient world believed that they could do other things but raise their children responsibly, mm-hmm. right? But but this has always been an assumption within the Judeo-Christian um, religion and also the societies that have developed from Judeo-Christianity. So why why is that though? What, what, why is that? Why why do Christians? Believe? I, I I don't even know if I could answer the like. The yeah. specific but, reason. So I think that there's three, there's at least three reasons you could argue. One is, is because part of the issue here is where do moral propositions come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right? Like, I mean, how can you prove that torturing a baby is wrong? Right? It's right. It, one of the things that's very difficult in philosophy is to determine where moral propositions come from. Yeah. I remember I did, a, I did, I was taking a graduate class at the doctoral level on this um, from a professor who was teaching at Oxford at the time. And I had to read uh, Peter Singer's book about like where basically different, different theories of philosophy. And I frankly found them all highly unpersuasive, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
so so this is a difficulty for everybody, not the, just the Christian. So in Christ, so Christians often do to do three things. One is we'll appeal to nature mm-hmm. as we conceive of it relative to the fall. So for example, um, most uh, most human beings would say in normal circumstances there is a natural relationship of natural affection between a mother and a child. Right. A woman, a woman feels responsible mm-hmm. and and it's also demonstrated by the embodied nature of human persons. So for example, we experience each other and experience ourselves as bodies. Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, if you talk uh, to people who are or, who are somewhat radical on the racial side, they they like to use the word black bodies. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want people to refer to the metaphysical reality of a black person if that can deny stuff that they would do to the person as an embodied person, right? So if you enslave somebody and then you give them a pastor and teach them to read, right? Mm-hmm. You may be like, you may be like feeding their quote, their quote personhood, but you're still enslaving their body. Right. Yeah. And so, so some of these left-wing activists will say black bodies. Mm-hmm. Right. And because they're trying to focus on what's being done to the body. Now, in some ways that's materialistic and utilitarian and it's, and it's terrible and dis- a disgusting way to think about persons morally. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, it's saying, no, this is an embodied person and you can't separate the person from the body. Well, similarly, this is abortion does that, right? If, mm-hmm. if a woman says I'm not a mother when her own body produced the egg conceived of the child, receives its implantation, is feeding it freely, yeah. right? What's happening here is, is that there's a psychosomatic disjunction in the woman who wishes to have an abortion because if, if a, the woman was holistically desirous of abortion, her body would miscarry, mm-hmm. right? But it's not. Her body is carrying the child. Her body wants the child. Mm-hmm. In fact, her body is part of what pumped all the hormones into her system to want sex mm-hmm. and to want the most intimate and the most fertile type of sex mm-hmm. that her conscious mind would allow her to have because her body was for a month tricking her into getting pregnant mm. because her body wants to get pregnant, right? Because she's a human person who has this dynamic of fertility, mm-hmm. right? And so like sometimes people just don't want to deal with that, that, like, that nature dictates this relationship, right? Also, you could argue that reason does in the nature of like mm-hmm. how things happen. Also, it, it's, it's relative to, it goes back to that quote that, that um, Carter Sneed put in his book that like that there are um, child, childless men who have forgotten their childhood, right? The, the, this idea that like there's an obligation for you to treat people relative to how you were treated and to pay, mm-hmm. to pay forward the realities of life. Right now, some people are like, listen. If my parents wanted to have me and they want to make all these sacrifices to have me, then you know whatever. But I don't have to do right. it. But a lot of us remember our parents saying stuff like that. Like when we're like, why did you like like mm-hmm. you should ask your parents why did you have me, and they won't say because it was wonderful the whole time. We thought it was going to be so great just to have kids. It was going to be so rewarding for us. Right. They were like, no, this is what you do mm-hmm. as a human person. You receive the sacrifice of somebody giving you life. And then you pass on that sacrifice by giving life to another and taking responsibility for that life, right? I think oh, – I just want to say this. I, one thing that I, I think about when you're saying all this is I think abortion in in the world and in the United States is, is a very good way of seeing how wicked the human, human nature is. Like, like I, don't, I don't think there's any other issues. I mean there are issues that show that, but I think that the – the way that is that our entire culture and society has justified um, abortion has shown 
what people try to hide, which is that we are we have a, an evil human nature. Like I don't, I just it's just an interesting. Yeah, I think that's because people really misunderstand a bunch of things, and one of them is childhood, children, right? Yeah. So one of the things yeah. that happened in American life is we romanticized a number of things yeah. that we expected people to find romantic. And one of them was children. So we romanticized children, right? Yeah. And that was partly because we didn't want to be stern with kids anymore. We were actually changing the way we were treating kids. They weren't to be seen and not heard, but now they yeah. were supposed to be this romantic Rousseauian figure that was inherently good and, and like creative and loving and right, which is partly true, right? And also probably partly naive but yeah. see then as we romanticize children the assumption is well then everybody would want children if, if there was any right people would only not want children if there was a really good reason yeah so if woman a named sarah wants to get an abortion then sarah right. would have to have a really good reason because children are cute and beautiful and lovely right. and maybe she's just not ready right now so she gets an abortion that's really not the truth yeah Right. Child, there's all kinds of romantic things to say about children, but there's also everything else to say about children, right. which is that they're the biggest sacrifice of your life. Yeah. Right. They, yeah. They're the biggest sacrifice. They're the greatest heartache. They take the most energy. They exhaust you. They kill your sex drive. They take your money. I mean, they are just this enormous, enormous sacrifice. Right. Mm -hmm. And they are worth it. Not because romantically, they're just going to bring you so much joy. Right. I mean, if you have the right attitude about them, they will bring you a lot of joy in that you will take joy in them as right. persons existing for their own sake. Right. But that's not really why you're doing it. They're worth it because they are new beings created in God's image that are his own godly offspring that exist for their own sake. Right. And right. in so doing, you've done something worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they turn out the way you want it, whether or not you take all this pleasure in them, yeah. you've done something inherent. Like just, I mean, like if you save somebody who's drowning in a river, right? Mm -hmm. You'll take some pleasure for it, but you're like, man, I risked my life for what? And mm -hmm. the answer is to do something worthwhile. It was worthwhile to save that person's life. Right. You, yeah, you're not going to get paid a million dollars. You may forget about it in a week, but you you did it because it was worth doing. Mm -hmm. It was the, but see, in order to believe that, you got to believe that you have a purpose and, and a creative reason. Right. And people have worth that's inherent right. and all that stuff is actually for all of our lives as human beings has been rooted in a religious worldview. And so, so far people have been willing to pick the fruit of religion in terms of meaning and morality and purpose and so on, but they don't, they don't want to acknowledge that the tree is even there. Mm -hmm. And more and more as they chop at the tree, they find the, the fruit disappearing. Yeah. So how can we, do you want to break down those, those, I mean, you talked about the reason why Christians right. see, do you want to break down each of these, you talk about logic yeah. and just break those down right. so, so that yeah, people so, can know. So I think a mother's relationship to the child is constituted a by nature. I think this is the number of yeah. arguments you can say it, it's naturally evident Yeah, and it's naturally evident in our intuitions. And it's naturally evident in how we have all lived life together in every other way. You were saying before we talked that there's like there's like laws in almost every country right. about how parents shouldn't abuse their children mm -hmm. and special responsibilities that the state expects parents to have towards their children because having children does constitute a special relationship of responsibility. We're yeah. willing to acknowledge that in all these other places. Then when we get to abortion where we're self-interested in our desire to just say, no, I don't want this child, mm -hmm. we like make up reasons to say that that relationship of nature isn't there and therefore not moral and responsible. Right. The second is reason, right? We have to be both hypocrites, right? We have to like not apply to ourselves what we benefited from, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it would be interesting to see who would be pro-choice if we lived in a Rawlsian world, right? Like 
Are you familiar with like the John Rawls and his theory of economics and all that? No, I'm where not. he's like, okay, he's like, this kind of society we should have is if everybody was going to be born again, like into a world, and they didn't know who they were going to be. Mm-hmm. So you didn't know if you were going to be black or white, or right. in India or America or whatever, like, or you know what social class, or whatever. That um, you were going to have to be born again. And you don't know where, who you're going to be in the society. What yeah. kind of society would you want if you had no idea who you were going to be born into as being? Right. Right. Similarly, it'd be interesting. And so it'd be interesting if we would be a pro-choice or pro-life society, if that mm-hmm. was the question. If like, yeah. if you didn't know right. what was going to happen to you in the womb, would you care? Right. Or wouldn't you? Like, I, I have a feeling that if, yeah. if now, now, I have, now, I don't think we would get an answer from people unless it actually happened. Yeah. Like, if we, if we, like, if God took us all into some gray ether and says, look, you all have to be born into that world, well, and, but you get to decide what kind of world you want it to be. The first question you have to, you have to answer is pro-choice or pro-life? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everybody's going to say yeah. pro pro life. I mean, because because it's, you would it, think if they were actually there and they wanted to exist, right. and because they would say pro-life. the pro choice, and it would it would I think that would be like slightly consistent with their view right now that it's just rooted in selfishness. I mean, it's like the reason that they would be pro pro life in that other world is right. because right now they're only pro their life. Like th- that's the only person that they've cared about. I mean, that that is themselves, right? Like that that would right. that's. So yeah, I think in, I think in a sense, but what that points to is hypocrisy, yeah, which is usually yes. not considered a good principle of moral no. reasoning, right? right? So law. I think that there yeah. are, I think that there are rational ways to say that people who are choosing to go towards a pro life argument are making are, are making irrational, that is hypocritical, yeah. inconsistent, and so on claims relative to other moral claims that they say that they believe. Right. I'm not sure that you can create almost any moral category just out of reason, like pulling it out of a hat. Yeah. You have to start with something that already exists, like yeah. what we already assume, what our moral intuitions tell us, what mm-hmm. we see in nature at its best and, it, and as it seems to be designed or to work properly, right? And mm-hmm. then the third for, for Christians is revelation. We believe that God has given right. special revelation in the scriptures and the people of the Jews and in – that is historically as, as in the Old Testament and in the person Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament through his church. What do you and say- in that, there's no question what, the, right. what God has shown our attitudes towards human persons should be. What what do you say to people who who would say that motherhood is a social construct? I I feel like that argument would come up, and not like an American social construct, but the motherhood, motherhood existed is- before societies. So so what they would have to do yeah. is not say this is like so when people say it's like when people say gender is a social construct. Yeah, it sort of is and it isn't. Like that's actually a really confusing phrase. Yeah, because if I say is being a man or male a social construct, like is gender a social constructs, most people in any sense would say no. But if I said, right. is being tough enough to beat up most people as part of manhood yes. a necessary component of understanding masculinity, most people would be like, well, no. Okay, so if you were in a society that believed that males right. were men and they should be able to beat up 80% of people, right? is that mass view of masculinity a, quote, social construct? And the answer yeah. is, well, it's a mix. Right, because what they do right? is they're they're basically biting off more than they can chew. They're saying that how we think about men is a social construct, right. but then what they're doing, but but with thinking that, then they take it to the next level that actually just men are a social construct or women are a social right. construct, and then right. you can't really defend that because right, the progressive is correct, and the the revolutionist and the the queerist is correct yeah. in saying. That manhood, manhood as conceived in, in womanhood is a social construct or masculine feminine right. are social constructs in that there are ways in which we think about being a man and being a woman that are constructed socially that are arbitrary and that don't need to be that way. Yeah. But 
But what happens then is, is that they often go too far in presuming that there is no relationship that is inherent in the relationship between maleness and masculinity or femaleness and femininity, which is false. Yeah. Right. So that's part of the issue is that I hate the phrase, quote, masculinity or femininity or whatever is this quote, social construct yeah. or motherhood, because that's that it creates this false dichotomy that doesn't exist. Right. All yeah. of our social constructs were constructed by societies on the basis of something. Yeah. If you just assume all that we've ever used to construct anything is oppression. Mm -hmm. Well, then. The social construct is going to be rooted in and created by oppression. Right. Therefore, it should be queered, dismantled, yeah. revolutionized, or so on, right? However, if other things were operating in human existence by which we determined what we thought a man or a woman was, besides just oppression, a lot of those things could be natural, true, consistent, necessary, and if, and developmental. If if the social construct argument is like a negative argument, which it usually is a negative argument, mm -hmm. then that would need to be like seen through, like through and through. And like, like, like you could say like, like applesauce is a social construct because it was mm -hmm. created out of something natural. Like, I, like what, right. what is that? Well, I mean, only, applesauce is a social construct. It, it, yeah. Right. But it's also, basically. it also happens whenever you mush up an apple. Right. right. And it's inherently related to apples and you can't take the apples out of it and it's still right. be applesauce. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You can create fruit mush out yeah. of other fruits, but then it's a little bit deceiving sauce. to call it applesauce. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's uh, it's it's only a social construct. If you take usually. the man out of masculinity and you're yeah. like, that's still masculine. You're like, mm, it's not really. Right. There exactly. has to be an inherent relationship between the maleness and the masculinity. But right. like, I'm so I'm all for the like progressivist person or the queerist or the whoever who's like, here are things in masculinity that our view of it that I think are toxic and shouldn't right. be in our view of masculinity. Right. I'm all for some of that stuff. Yeah. But when they get to maleness. Yeah. They lose me. I'm like, no, right. I think that that's actually should be in there right. because that's what we're building masculinity from. Because it is in there. It, it, it right. Masculinity the is model right. maleness. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Right? right. And so if you take the maleness out of masculinity, your masculinity has no meaning. Right. You have right? nothing. <laughs> but it is true that like it's hard to just look at a male person and watch one like walk around and construct all of masculinity. There are more things we're adding in right. to know what masculinity is. Right. So anyway, yeah. so, so when it comes to what a mother yeah. is, right. I mean, the concept of motherhood exists. I mean, what a mother mothers existed before the concept of motherhood in modern parlance, but like, honestly, not that much has changed. So like if motherhood is you drive a nice car, you can park it in your garage, you have air conditioning, you, you get a $60 haircut in your salon, blah, 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 blah. You go to the gym three times a week so you can be a trophy wife and you don't yeah. have more than two children. If that's your, quote, construct of motherhood, then they're totally right that that's yeah. a construct, right? right? But if, if, there, if the construct of motherhood is um, cares for children naturally conceived in their womb through consensual intercourse, that's, that's like taking the woman out of womanhood. Yeah. Out of femininity, taking the natural procreative care out of motherhood is to literally take the motherhood out of motherhood. I it's like, like trying to come up with the concept of motherhood without a mother or a woman. I feel like to completely uh, eliminate motherhood the way that some people want to do, you would have to just, I mean, this is going to sound messed up, but like kill all the mother. That's why those types of philosophies are dangerous, right? You'd have to just commit like genocide. Or not genocide. Yeah, I mean, all the mothers. I mean, I think people are assuming that you can like 
you know, if you revolutionize an idea or queer an idea long enough, you can like undo it. I mean, like they're doing that. People are doing that with the concept of humanity right now. We're you, losing our grip on what a human being is, and that, and nobody's killing anybody. Well, I mean, the people are killing people, but they're not killing everybody so that we could come with a new view of human. You know, I, what mean, I mean, they are they are an abortion. They're killing millions of people all the time, and that's that falls into that. Yeah, but the way they're trying to convince you that is not your by view, killing it's me. not by killing you. It's by like messing with all the pr- premises in your head, making you feel like you don't know anything, and that every right. all the clarity in your mind it was all a, was all a fantasy. Yeah, and then they can completely rewrite everything from scratch as though nothing is inherently itself. <sighs> you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so and, and they're and what they're hoping to what they're hoping for, I think, is freedom. But when a person says this, the whole, this whole concept of motherhood is a social construct, and they're using yeah. it in relationship to abortion. Yeah, that's that really is is just lazy thinking. Yeah, because if you start to say, okay, what does social construct mean? And okay, what is constructed socially and what isn't constructed socially in motherhood? Right. And the answer is the only thing we know for sure isn't constructed socially in motherhood is the mother part. That a woman is ha- is bearing offspring through her own body by the natural means of procreation. Right. Right. I mean, anyway, pe- people, people aren't. Yeah, yeah, if people aren't thinking politically, I mean, they'll refer to their dog having puppies as the dog being a mother. Yeah. Because because they know that like no matter no matter how much that dog acts like a woman who has children in uh, in twenty first century America, mm-hmm. she had babies. Yeah, I think this is this kind of talks. I mean, this in some ways. It, it relates to in the previous podcast we talked about um, Christianity and liberalism that the book that you that you said that people yep. should read and and just like the way that that these I mean and that that relates directly to the gospel but but the like all the ways that like language and things like that can really screw up the way of thinking uh, our way of thinking if we if we get these definitions wrong and if we start to redefine things and things yeah. like that that have been defined for like all of human history it, it, yeah that's kind of but what I, we're trying to do in our society right now yeah but i think for people who are trying to resist that we have to learn to defend we have to know what our definitions are. And learn definitions are yes, and that'll that'll grow us up philosophically and mentally, yeah. and it'll really help us. I th- I think. I mean, on some level, I don't want everybody to be able to defend every proposition, but to be able to say, no, I know what a mother is, and right, it starts with this, and then right. I, in some ways, discover what being a mother is as I raise my child. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, I accept being a mother before I really fully discover what it means to be one, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to really find out as I talk to other mothers. As I experience motherhood, yeah, you know, in that sense, it's it's more experiential than a construct. So, what would you, what would you say to somebody who, a young woman maybe who had sex and got pregnant, and you know, she comes to you and says, "I, I want to get an abortion," but she, you, you kind of explain the the that the the idea and the Christian belief that because you've had sex, you consented to being a mother, you, to potentially being a mother, and she says, "Well, I didn't consent to that. Like, I didn't think about that. Like, I, that wasn't." in my mind and I never actually consented to that. Like, like what, what's the relationship yeah. between having sexual intercourse and then being a mother or a father? And, and this goes both ways. It could be a mom or a dad. So I, I think that um, it first starts with the question of d- does, if the person knows that sexual intercourse can lead to pregnancy, mm-hmm. then engaging in consensual sexual intercourse is the possible con- consenting to being a mother or a father. Right. Mm-hmm. And like a lot, a lo- I have, I cannot think of the last pro choice person I've met who believes that it should be, that should be true for the father. That, okay. that a fa- if a father has sexual intercourse, a woman conceives, has the child, asks for child support, 
that the father can say, look, I didn't consent to this. Right. Right. Yeah. Very few people are – like I don't know very many pro-choice people who are also part of the men's rights movement, mm-hmm. for example, which I find to be profoundly hypocritical. Mm-hmm. You know, If a yeah. woman can get rid of her pregnancy because she doesn't want to take responsibility for it, why can't a man say that he doesn't want to take responsibility for a pregnancy that he created? It just doesn't right. make any sense, I don't yeah. think. I think it's an example of interested thinking. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm 100% for – Men being forced to take responsibility for the pregnancies they create so long as a woman acted justly. Yeah. Right. Um, but I am not. But I that, but that's why I think I'm consistent in being pro-life. Yeah. I think both the woman and the man need to take responsibility. Right. So I think if she if she knows that, then, then yeah, I think that the um, – now, obviously, the way I'm going to talk to a person in my office as a pastor is a lot different than I'm talking right now. Right. And trying to clarify the ideas of the morality of a particular thing. So you're, you're saying that it would kind of be like, like, hey, you – you didn't like verbally consent to this, or maybe you didn't even think about it, but you understand what sex does at a very basic level and what can come out of that. And so you did consent to it. Like, therefore you did consent to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I just think that I mean, people, people, people are constantly trying to pretend that sex isn't a procreative act by trying to make it infertile. But like, I, I mean, this may be a surprise to some listeners, but Sex is the act of human procreation. Yeah. That's what it is. The reason why you have all the feelings and the drives and the desires and the reasons it's so pleasurable and all of that is because nature is trying to trick you into having babies. Yeah. Like that's the whole purpose of it. It's so life would go on. Mm-hmm. And we have then tried to commodify what goes with the pleasure of conceiving children to take the pleasure and the desire and utilize that without the fruits. Nobody – Andrew and I were talking about this the other day, how it's just it, – it's not funny, but it's kind of like it's kind of like God had to add in like all of the like sexual stuff to sex. Otherwise, people would just never have babies and we would have died off a long time. Oh, like, yeah, all that's the... Absolutely true. That's yeah. what I tell. Like when I talk to like 14 and 15 year olds where they're like, why is it like this? Why are we have these sex drives and blah, blah, blah. Like, why, would God, why would God do this stuff? And I was like, do you think you would exist? Yeah, right. If that, that wasn't the case, like yeah. God had to make it this way or we wouldn't have enough children yeah. to for any of us to even exist. By the right? way, I want to say this now because I'm allowed to. Uh, Andrea is pregnant for everybody listening. So I'm going to be a father. And so th- th- this conversation about abor- abortion actually, so, so we've been going in, so I can find, I couldn't say it in the last podcast because we had one more person to tell before we told like the public or whatever. But um, we, we go, w- when we go into these, the, the ultrasounds and things like that, I think she's like 13 weeks in or whatever, 14 weeks, mm-hmm. the baby's like moving around and like flipping on its head and on its back all the time. It's insane. And I just, I don't know. I just want this like a small rant, but I don't know how anybody could think that that was not a human being. Like that thing is making its own decisions to move. Like it's, it's, I, there's gotta be some sort of consciousness in there to make it be like, it's exploring its body. It's exploring yeah. its environment. It's, I mean, yeah, it doesn't, it's, he's, he's probably not doing math, but no, but he's, he was not comfortable on his back. And so in the thing he flipped on it, or I don't know if it was a man, but whatever this ends up being, are they them? Um, or whatever it ends up being, flipped over on its face, and I was like, "That's just nuts." And I, I don't know, like it's it just found that it was not comfortable, and then it just changed its uh, its its way of, of laying there. So, yeah. Okay, so so the second argument proportion yes. folks often use is related to saying that to, when we say human being, yeah, that's that's not the morally relevant meaning of that is not an alive thing that has human genetics. 
Yeah. But that it, what we mean by that is something like personhood. Like when we experience another person, when we experience ourselves, we, we have assumptions about certain traits that we have. And if those make us persons that are different from pigs and horses and dogs or whatever, and that, that, that our rights are afforded to us on the basis of, of us having those characteristics. It is interesting. Yeah. I was just going to say it is interesting. Unborn that- people don't have any of those characteristics is what these philosophers argue. Well, it, it's, it's interesting that – your with the human being, I mean, with this argument, it's that just when I hear people talk about abortion a lot, it's, it's always a biological argument. People, pro-choice people are always trying to make a biological argument, and I think you can do that. But the, you're you're taking a philosophical stance, right, on what a human being is or what a human person is, what is personhood, right? That's what you're doing right now. You're not making a biology well, I, argument. Yeah, but here's the thing: all these arguments started in 1971 to 73. And they haven't really changed yeah. I could, because I think that even though the abor- pro-abortion argument biologically has only gotten worse because we've been able to see yeah. what's going on in the womb, yeah. what, what we've done there is added empathy to logic. We always knew logically what was in the womb. That was really never in question. Yeah. The question was our ability to see it, to see right. the tiny head, yeah. to see the tiny fingers, to actually mm-hmm. see interutero pictures of fingernails. Right. Of babies. Yeah. And now to see ultrasounds where you can see the baby flipping around and you can even do 3D ultrasounds and actually see the look on the kid's face. Gosh. Right. None of that was available in the 1970s, but all the reasoning was available. Everybody knew you had a living human being in the mother's womb. Yeah. And partially because the mom started feeling it at some point. I mean, mm-hmm. you can start feeling something moving around in there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, and so a number of these these philosophers wanted to argue, therefore, and this this is true up to the present day. Peter Singer is arguing the same argument like this year mm-hmm. about abortion. It started with this guy named Michael Tooley mm-hmm. in his article, Abortion and Infanticide in 1972, in which he said, the presence of a right is, a con- is conditional on the desire of the bearer of that right. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying is this, if you can't desire to live cognitively, then you have no right to life. So what do you say to arguments like that? I mean, those arguments come up uh, oftentimes. What do you say to that? I mean, because there there is some sort of like when you think through it, you're kind of like, oh, I guess that could make sense. Because like the the argument with moral propositions, the question is not does it make sense? The question is, is it is it true enough that I'm obligated to believe it? To believe it. Yeah. Okay. Right. I don't understand why I would be obligated to believe in that sentence. Like, why should somebody only have a right if they can desire the right? Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments that pro-life people have often made is people in temporary states in which they can't cognitively desire things. So or do you lose your human personhood when you fall asleep? Do you, do you lose yeah. your personhood if you're in a coma for three days? Or if do you you're lose knocked your personhood when, when you're seven years old and you don't know, you never had sex? I mean, and, and people would be right. against raping children. And yet I, I feel like that right. would. Right. If you're, if you're in a suicidal mood yeah. and you don't want to live, do you mm-hmm. lose your right to life? If somebody comes to us along, would you say, I wish I could die and they shoot in the back of the head? Have they not committed murder because you didn't want to live, right? Now, what pro-choice people do often is they'll say, well, um, the question here is, is in an ongoing and developmental way. So basically, they'll make carve-outs mm-hmm. for these exceptions. Mm-hmm. But then the problem is, is like, well, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Why should we believe in your exceptions? I mean, like, why, why should you just be like, well, I don't mean those people. Well, mm-hmm. I do mean those people. Right. So, so because they're trying to give us a, a universal criteria and I'm showing the criteria is not universal and they go, well, I'll stipulate those non-universal examples 
And I'll say, okay, and my answer is fine, as long as you stipulate all the non-universal examples, including the pre-born child, but they won't do right. that. Right. And the pre-born child has the most defensible reason for not having these criteria. They aren't developmentally there yet. Do do we have any thorough definition of consciousness as of right now? These philosophers will define consciousness slightly differently, but what they usually mean is self-consciousness in, in a, and a belief. So you believe that you exist, you know you exist, and your belief in your existence as a being has continuity. So you you think you're the same being in three minutes that you you think you are right now. And do you you disagree with that definition? I think it's a it's fine as a like sort of like preliminary definition of part of consciousness. I just don't think it's what gives us our moral status. I mean, why believe that? Why believe consciousness gives moral status? I don't see any reason to believe that. So you're saying that, that okay? So so that a baby might not have consciousness, but that that the consciousness isn't directly connected to whether or not they should be killed. And I I think. Right. And pro-life people, at least now, would argue this is a discrim- this is discrimination on the basis of development. Okay. Just, right. Because you might as well say um, a human person can jump over a small chest. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you put a small chest in the floor that's two feet right. high. A human person should be able to jump over that. Mm-hmm. You get a two year old he, and he's walking. He can't right. jump over that. Right. But you can. So he's not a person. I mean. Most yeah. human beings in health have a capacity for being ambulatory and jumping over small items, right? right? But right. why should that be included? Right. Why can't we to kill two? I mean, in a sense, I, I consider these to be, be fundamentally arbitrary categories. Now, a pro-choice person would say, yeah, but they're, they're, they're naturally human. Mm-hmm. A naturally healthy human being will have these. Okay, yeah. But now we're back to nature dictating our morality mm-hmm. and a woman – who conceives a child is naturally a mother, right? So like if you use that to, to defend yourself on the second argument, you've lost on the first one. Yeah. And if you lose on the first argument, you've lost. Even if you win the second argument, like who's the person who isn't? It, the minute you, you concede yeah. that a woman who has a child in her is a mother, you've lost. Right. Because you previously said that the woman is not a mother <laughs> and right. she's not tied to motherhood. Right. Gosh, so now, the, yeah. part of the issue here is that what pro-choice people are doing is they're just following in the footsteps of utilitarianism and non-Christian philosophy because what they're doing is this. They're saying, okay, we can't take revelation as the basis for believing in human rights. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can't say, well, revelation or uh, Genesis, the Bible just says that we're made in God's image. So we just are right. Mm-hmm. No, you have to substantiate that. Okay. But you don't want to say that you have the same rights as a cow. So what makes you as a human being like somebody who has these things called rights, but cows and horses right. and walleyes don't, yeah. right? What makes you special? So see, you come up with a list of things that you have that those other animals don't. Yeah. So if a human child hasn't developmentally developed those things, then for a developmental reason, they're in the same place as another as another animal is for a species reason. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that human being hasn't ascended to personhood yet. Mm-hmm. Even if we have every reason to believe in the course of natural development, he or she would do so. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So I, I, I just I, think that that is an incredibly juvenile way of thinking. I just, yeah. I mean, I know these people who wrote these articles are smart people. I think it's a ridiculously foolish way of thinking. And I, I don't care if they have PhDs yeah. and they've published in journals. I think this is ridiculously foolish. 
and juvenile and silly and not philosophically robust. Yeah. Okay. So basically what I'm hearing and throughout this whole podcast is that there's no, all of these reasons that the pro-choicers bring up or pro-abortion, they bring these, these reasons and, and all this reasoning and philosophy to the table and none of it makes sense. I think then we just need to get down to the like, I think it proves too much. Well, I think, I mean, what does it say about these people? Because I think the bottom line here is that like you can have the philosophical and biological argument about whether abortion is murder or whether the baby's alive or whatever. I mean, but I feel like like there needs to be a conversation around I mean, you, like like we can't go another 47 minutes or another 30 minutes talking about how, I mean, we could, but like we've I feel like that we've done it. Like they, they, they like they don't make yeah. sense really on their face. And so the bottom line here is that people are evil sinners <laughs> like and they don't want to come to terms with that and so in these conversations you come to a standpoint or a stance yeah. and so, okay, so yeah go ahead yeah okay so um Marianne Glendon is a catholic author who one of her her latest books is called Primal Screams mm-hmm. and it's a, it's how the sexual it's called, the subtitle is how the sexual revolution created identity politics the reason she named it primal screams was because Women who believe in the sexual revolution have still been harmed by it dramatically, which has produced a kind of primal scream in them. Yeah. Which is part of what's motivating certain versions of the Me Too movement and modern feminism. Is this kind of say they go back to their abuser after being abused? Kind of. Like they they realize something's wrong, but they're trying to figure it out. Part of the issue here is, and this gets back to the the stuff like you've said about – about expressive individualism. People don't understand the philosophy that's animating them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what that's I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, who, who is the, like uh, John Maynard Keynes said, you know, people think that they think these incredibly like important philosophies, but most of them are beholden to the, the outdated philosophy of some defunct economist. Yeah. And, and that's true for people now. That's true. And that's true for like, in some ways for all of us, a lot of us have views that in some ways that's true of, right? Yeah. And so I think a lot, I think a lot of people who are pro-choice they're not starting from a like a worldview that dignifies human beings connected to God in creation. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. They're starting from a world that has lost its compass. Mm-hmm. That, as Nietzsche said, you know what happens when you kill God? Mm-hmm. Because when you kill God, you wipe away the horizon, and now you have nowhere to determine where you're going or where you've been. Like you're, you're like, don't you realize how disoriented you don't realize how disoriented you are. You've got, you've gotten a sense of logical vertigo and you don't even know what to do. And you're trying to make sense of your world. And when you're trying to do that, the idea expressive individualism makes a good bit of sense. Right. You know? And so these people are trying to, I mean, just for people who don't know what expressive individualism is, I'll do my best to define it. But then Nick will probably correct me. I mean, basically, just the idea that like like who you are is 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 brought about by what's within you rather than what's outside of you. Like there there's no there's like God there's nothing higher or outside of you that that determines who you are and what you are and why you're important and what's going on in this world. And you get to define that for yourself. And right. that's where a lot of these philosophies come from. Like trans, right. rather than discovering your nature yeah. and conforming to it, conformity is seen as. Something that society create puts on you yeah. to deform you, yes, and therefore authentic self-expression of whatever's inside is at the heart of what it means to be a good person mm-hmm. and a free person and a happy person. Yeah, right. No matter and what so, that means for other people around you, right? And so, if you believe that that motherhood is a construct of society, 
and society has a, a oppressive characteristic of trying to yes. tell you what you have to be. Right. Because motherhood is a teleological worldview, right? It says you are this thing, whether you like it or not, and you have to conform to its dictates. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's like, I mean, that is as heretical to modern public life as you could possibly be. I yeah. mean, there's nothing as heretical as motherhood. That's why it's hard for me with a lot of pro pro lifers, and maybe we get to in the in the weeds with this. But a lot of pro lifers are, are Republicans and conservatives. I mean, that's like that politically, and and it's difficult because I've been thinking about this about how the industrial revolution has like enhanced expressive individualism by a, a lot because we just we started just taking things from the natural world and creating whatever we wanted out of them. Um, and Republicans are like total, totally for capitalism, which like so am I. Um, and capitalism produced the industrial revolution, but then they're anti some of these other pro-expressive individualism things. Like I, I don't want to say. Does this make sense? What I'm saying? Like I don't want to say capitalism really? is pro-expressive individualism, but it's a it's a product of expressive individualism in some ways, right? Yeah. Well. No, I don't think that would – I wouldn't say that capitalism is an expression of – The Industrial Revolution. I would say consumerism, consumerism. would be an a kind of expression of expressive individualism. But is because that a foundation of capitalism? Because consumerism is the idea that you're engaging in a free market of exchange in a way that's just focused on what you want. Yeah. Right. So I'll buy the thing from China even though I know Uyghur children Are in concentration camps yeah. are making it because it's cheaper. Yeah. You know, right? Because um, because the, the, the difference between I think liberals and conservatives m is mainly not one is for a relatively robust market and the other isn't. Though there are obviously there are true socialists, yeah. but it's like it, it's a question: What are the mediating institutions of what men and women will do in markets if they are only impersonally related to each other? Hmm. Right? What happens when the market becomes fully organized and? bigger and just starts moving on impersonal principles what mediates that right yeah is it is it just a huge federal government and that those two huge behemoth powers hold each other in constant tension or is it the mediating structures of voluntary associations between the human the individual human being and the government what burke called the platoons of i forget what he called them and you would like say basically and so conservatism historically has been the latter yeah. that everything between the family, the church, yeah. the school, the Iwana club, the, like yeah. the, the yeah. key club, the veterans right. of foreign wars, all, like all these huge societies where people relate to each other on the basis of their relationships mm -hmm. mediate the impersonal nature of the world right. and how it functions in a really good way to cooperate on a large scale to bring about wealth. And the progressive view that a muscular federal government will be is the only thing big enough to fight with these increasingly large corporations mm -hmm. so that the little guy could have representation at the size mm -hmm. of the government is in some ways logical, right? Right. The, the problem is, is that on the conservative side, our philosophy fails because consumerism tends to break down the voluntary societies. Right. And make them go away. And so you look at society and all these mediating institutions are like basically on the ropes, getting the crap beat out of them. Yeah. The church, the family, the private educational institution, you know, all these kinds of like rich, robust things that right. human beings used to do for themselves mm -hmm. are getting devoured by government or by the fact that we just get busy or the fact that like there's like 15 billion hours of things to watch on our screens. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, think about this. What did, what do you think people used to do? 
with the time they now spend watching TV or screens or YouTube or social media. I mean, they used to go out into their people. Yeah, they would spend time with people at their homes and families, or they would go out into the community and create voluntary societies to do things that they thought were worth doing. I just will say, I mean, obviously, I grew up with TVs and all these things, but even when I was a kid, there was a time period where people would just drive over to our house and knock on the door without, there was no plans around it, but they'd just come over while they were driving uh, around and they'd bring like ice cream and our whole families would hang out together. And I don't think that ever happens anymore for anybody. And I I mean, almost nobody comes to our house uninvited. Yeah. And usually planned. Well, it's because you're like scared that they're going to get pissed off at you. Yeah. Partly. I mean, I, that's, yeah. But, I, but, but, but see, I also think the progressive is also wrong because this idea that the federal government is going to hold the great corporations in check is false mm-hmm. too, right. right? Because through lobbying and money and other kinds yes, of things, exactly. yeah. they end up capturing the government interest and then wielding both the corporation and the government yeah. against the little person. Yeah. Right. And I think the COVID, I mean, COVID vaccines were a great example of that, whether or not they are really great or not, mm-hmm. that Pfizer's ability to capture the government yeah. And create a multi, I mean, it's got to be multi-trillion dollars globally transfer Absolutely. of wealth on the basis of a vaccine that most of the people who got it didn't need, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, like whether or not as a area of health policy, mm-hmm. that makes any sense. I mean, just for a moment, just think of the wealth transfer there. Right. Right. For people I, who hate capitalism, they were really, really pro vaccine. Um because, I mean, yeah. they're really pro everybody getting the vaccine. Yeah. But- and I, listen, I'm super pro vaccine too, so long as the market is totally open and free and so on. And it I, makes I, sense I just, for you to get it. I mean, right. if you're just getting it for no reason, I, I'm not Right, but like, it's not just things like vaccines. It's like regulations that large companies get put in place so that little companies can't compete with them. Yeah. For, for example, like the, the health codes in New York City mm-hmm. are so legally complicated. It's like, I don't know how many thousands of pages. Mm-hmm. So uh, a a company like McDonald's or Starbucks, who has lawyers that can set policies for every single thing done in every single one of those locations at the corporate level, can create operations of scale so that a McDonald's can function in New York City and obey all the health codes because they have this system of corporatized governance. Yeah. But somebody who just wants to open a sandwich shop has to like sit around at night. They might not even have any education. They might not even graduate from high school, right. but they got to read 2,800 pages or something. It's actually, I think a lot more than that. Yeah. Of all of these laws in New York City that have been lobbied for and put into place to protect certain yeah. interests and not others. Yeah. And as you get into other places like Venezuela and Argentina yeah. and Madagascar and like the, like Kenya and places where like this is sometimes even worse, mm-hmm. right? The, the, this, this idea of government capture is terrible. So um, – so I want to so bring this back. Most people have this breakdown in our view yeah. of how human societies function in a healthy way. Yeah, I want to bring this back. I want to bring it back to to abortion. Like we kind of got off there, which is yeah, fine. Sorry. But but I, well, I I want to ask because I think this always comes down to well, what it ultimately should come down to. I think for Christians in these conversations that they're going to be having throughout the next several months about abortion and, and Roe v. Wade and things like that, um, is how can you get the gospel. How do you talk to these people? How how do you get the gospel across to these people who, who I mean, th- there's just this foundational dis- disagreement. I mean, it's like there's just a, d- a disagreement on what human beings are, and what what is it? You know, what these things like mo- motherhood and things like you're just gonna you're just gonna come to a place where you just disagree. And so, I don't think that that should be the end of those conversations. I think that that should be. Uh, maybe some sort of like a like a, you know a flag in your head that's like okay now I have an opportunity to like take this to a, a level of 
when do you share the gospel and how do you share the gospel with these people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, two generations ago, Francis Schaeffer, who was a significant apologist in the 20th century said, and he wrote a lot on abortion too. Yeah. He's, he believed in something he called pre-evangelism, which is that you had to show the inherent instability in the view the person already held. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it's helpful to try to be, to be able to show why the view that's held by the pro-choice person is inherently unstable. Right. Right. Um, to our, I mean, the, the moral basis for these ethical theories are assertions. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to believe they're obligatory or necessarily true. Right. And they can't be substantiated. And we're just using them as ways to say, well, this must be true. And what that really is, is it a action of power and therefore oppression. So there's two ways to say, to talk about this with a person, especially if they're, if, they're, if they're a secular progressive person, they may not be super compelled by the idea that it's not rational because they may have an af- activistic mindset. Yes, I intuitionally know what's right. I can express that and I should be an activist for it. So rational arguments sometimes don't aren't really helpful for folks like that. I would say because, for most of my generation, that would be yeah. Because the they think that rationality is a white thing <laughs> that like people misuse to gaslight people who are being oppressed. Yeah, right. And so they go, "I don't even want to hear it." Right. Yeah. But if you can say, actually, it's the opposite of that. Right. What pro-choice people are doing is they're taking arbitrary moral principles, they're reasoning that it's okay to dismember children, and then they're saying you have to accept this. What they're they're using rationality to gaslight people to oppress the weakest members of our society. Yeah. And a that flawed, is a flawed rationale, not, not true rationality, but right. a version of it. That's Yeah. And, and I think, I also think that I, I, I mean, what I say to people who are Democrats is um, being pro-life doesn't mean that you can't be a Democrat. Right. Democrats might say that some Democrats might say that, but if the right. democratic logic, Democrat logic is democracy exists so that everybody has a voice and with part of what's built into that is the idea that the people with the weakest voice have to be disproportionately advocated for by people who have a voice in the society, right? Then the, the number one first group that the Democratic Party should be defending is the unborn. Do you – yeah, and that's what they should be doing. I mean and right so now I, – I, I try to show an instability in the view that the pro-life person is holding if that's what we're talking about. Yeah. If I'm just talking to a person, I want to talk about Jesus first anyway. I don't yeah. want to talk about abortion. Abortion, right. You're, yeah. you're kind of put the car before the horse if you yeah. – Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the gospel has ethical implications that flow clearly from it. If you believe right. the gospel, then some of these things become clear pretty quick. I mean I've talked to numerous people who are pro-choice and they became a Christian and they virtually immediately changed their view. Yeah. Because they realized they were changing to a new, completely new philosophy. They, right. they understood. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think I think we need a little bit of a conversation here about about this because about what I'm about to say because I I have been trying to think through this for a long time and I cannot come to any conclu- I mean any conclusion besides one is that how can you actually in 2022 be a Democrat and vote for Democrats and I don't know if I mean you can say if we don't want to go here but vote for Democrats who support abortion and then fund Planned Parenthood and fund abortions and fund things like that? Mm-hmm. How can you be a Christian and do that? I, I I don't know how to. I don't know how you can justify that. Like, that's a moral thing. I, I don't. That's like babies that are being murdered. Like, at what point does God say, "All right, you're advocating for something that's like so evil that you're going to go to hell"? I don't. I'm I'm not saying that that's happening. Yeah. That's going to happen. But like, I, this is what I just keep. I keep coming to a roadblock, and I think a lot of people have this question, and it yeah. doesn't really get answered. 
Yeah, there are some answers to this that I've heard from believers. First, one is is that they believe that a more robust social safety net will decrease the number of actual abortions. So that if what you really want is more babies to live, as opposed to saying it's illegal to kill them, then being for politicians that want to create a more substantial safety net is the best way to do that, i.e. Democrats. That doesn't happen, though. Well, uh, they have their graphs. Yeah, but and the, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I can, I mean, I haven't taken the time to work on whether or not they should be disproven, but their argument is, is that during democratic presidencies or under regimes of expanded social welfare, there are fewer abortions. Now you, you may argue that's because the previous Republican president actually got the economy going again and people actually tend to have more children when the economy is going well sure. and fewer abortions. Do you think it also has to do with the fact that they they change the definition of a, of a child every four years? If the, I mean, if a Republican's in office, no, because they're, they're, what they're but, saying is what they're saying is, um, the array of social welfare benefits when it's increasing and it's substantial, mm-hmm. there are fewer abortions in America, and they argue that that correlation obtains that that's a real correlation so they would say if what you want as a christian is fewer abortions then yeah you may not like the democratic policy on being pro-life but there are other policies that make it easier to have children and pay for them for Mm -hmm. people of lower incomes uh helps there be fewer abortions and i i think as a christian if that's true if that's true i think as a christian you could say okay because republicans say that all the say that kind of thing all the time where they say it's not about what feels good it what it's what ends up doing good right yeah right so and so, and so the, if yeah go ahead so i think i think democrats are wrong so you could be a christian believe democrats are wrong to be pro-choice but believe that they're actually correct in what produces the social situation in which more children will be born would they say that before roe v wade like the 30 40 years before roe v wade compared to the 30 or 40 years after Roe v. Wade, that there was the same or more abortions? Oh, there's no way to defend that. That's, yes. co- that's a completely indefensible view. Yeah, but yeah, that's basically clear, there's, what they're saying. I, there's millions and millions and millions more abortions after Roe versus Wade than before, yeah. But, but no, 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 but that's not the question you asked. You didn't ask the question, should we be pro-choice or pro-life legally? You said, what, how can a Christian vote for Democrats? Those are two different questions. Well, you, I mean, they are two different uh, okay, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think they're two different questions because if you vote for a Democrat, you're voting for their their platform and what they, and I mean, ultimately what they spend money on. What and people so, have said for a really long time. So another thing that that pro pro Democrat Christians will say is, they'll say, listen, do you really think that if we get Republican lawmakers, we're actually going to get the overturning of Roe versus Wade? Do you really think that? And for many years in my voting life, people acted like it was stupid to vote on abortion because nothing was ever going to change. Like we were never going to get people on the court because conservative justices don't like to overturn presidents, right? Keeping precedents in place is a conservative value, right? Mm -hmm. And so you'd have to get people who are conservatives, but also they believed in the overturning of, um, of precedents and you had to get a majority on the court and probably more than just five to flip Roe versus Wade and some of these precedents. And people are like, that is just never going to happen. But that's, right? that's to me is like, uh, whether you think it's going to happen or not, does that mean that you just quit fighting for it? Like, it's like, okay, uh, we roll over and well, die. No, no, what they would say is, is that there are other things that whether other, we get a Democrat yeah. or Republican, we will get different results. Like we may or may not go to war. We may or may not have a good economy. We may or may not. And like, like a couple points on GDP, Andy, 
like correlates to deaths and and lives saved. Yeah. Right. Like Jay Bhattacharya at this, the Stanford, what is Stanford's think tanks talks about this, that like, like that, that's why like in COVID, like if you make the argument, why was it wrong to shut things down during COVID? Right. And one of the arguments is because it drops GDP. And when you drop GDP, people start dying. Like, like if you lower the amount of general wealth, there are going to be people who are just not going to get medical treatments. They're not going to do this or not. Like things are going to happen so that people die. Right. I mean, how often so, does GDP go up with Democrats in office? That's not happening right now. It didn't happen with Obama. Mm-mm. It didn't happen with Clinton. Maybe. No, maybe I think it did happen, it did happen with Clinton. Clinton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the later part yeah. of this. Uh, yeah. I think, well, and part of it too is remember that like a lot of Republicans argue that because of the changes Reagan made, GDP increased for 30 years. Well, they were Democratic presidents during some of those 30 years, right? So sure. par- part of it is to remember is, is like people want to believe that what's happening right now is President Biden. And what happened, you know, four years ago was President Trump. Yeah. That's not really how a GDP works, right? Like, and, and that's what, you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I think that somebody like President, like some people have said President Biden has done things to really accelerate problems. Mm-hmm. Or President Trump did things to decelerate problems and make mm-hmm. things better. Mm-hmm. I actually think that that is true. I think President Trump did things that helped with GDP, and President Biden right now is doing things that are really harming GDP. Yeah. But I also think that like President Trump's economy was not only President Trump, and President Biden's is not only President Biden. I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I, I just I've just had a hard time talking to people who are Christians, and they a, a lot of times it doesn't feel like it's it, like they'll be like ah, I'm pro I'm pro life, but I'm also a Democrat. But it feels like they're a Democrat or they vote left more for the social uh, credit that you get from that rather than Mm -hmm. that they're actually advocates for things that are good and right. And yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I I was listening to a podcast with, I think it's Bethany Mandel on it and they, Mm -hmm. she was trying to publish children's books that weren't woke and they couldn't get illustrators. So they, (laughs) they, they were putting a book out on Thomas Sowell. This is a black man, right? Yeah. Yeah, Who overcame racism. Like this is, he, he went to elementary school, was put in third grade when he deserved to be in fourth grade and went himself as a third grader to the principal's office and said, I should be in the fourth grade mm-hmm. and advocated for himself in a racist context. And the principal gave him a math test that he passed and he got put in the fourth grade. Yeah. Right. Like this, I mean, this is, and I mean, this is a guy who's written incredible, like uh, 30 books. And I mean, this People is like one of, the most, one of the most yeah. accomplished black men of the last century. Right. Yeah. And Bethany Mandel wanted to write a book on him, which, and he's a, he's a conservative. I mean, he's a yeah. kind of a libertarian free market yeah. conservative. And she literally couldn't get an illustrator on the Eastern seaboard. She ended the first like three books that they did. They used illustrators from, I want to say she said Romania and Bulgaria. Really? They literally had to go to Eastern Europe to get illustrators for this book on a black man who was a towering intellect who overcame oppression in the 20th century because he's a conservative and random house and penguin and blah, 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 are just not going to publish that. And and, and Bethany said, we, we went to illustrators in New York and Connecticut and some of these places where I knew people and tried to get illustrators. We offered them thousands of dollars to illustrate the books. And they said, I can't do that. I'm afraid that if I illustrate this book, people will find out I'll get canceled and I'll never work again. Yeah. So, so I mean, we shouldn't pretend there isn't cred to one and stuff against another political party, especially under certain in certain jobs, in certain age groups. Like somebody like me who's at the top of my organization, and and it's very hard to cancel somebody like me. I'm pretty safe, but your average twenty year old who's working through a corporation, right? Not safe. So how 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 long can you sustain Christianity with that mindset? With that mindset, because it seems to always chip away at, at, at your morals. Yeah. Oh, not very long. 
That's why I'm. That's why I'm asking this because there's there's people my age that I know them who have well, no. Hey, yeah. Go are ahead. we talking about the same that when you said that? Like I'm thinking of the mindset that I will capitulate to the philosophies around me. Yes. To, to go along and get along. Yes. No matter what they teach. Yes. I think that philosophy is idolatry and isn't yes. Christianity. So how long can you sustain Christianity and idolatry? Well, zero. You already aren't. Yeah. Right. You're an idolater. Okay, so so that seems to be the case with like, okay, big generalization coming here, but that seems to be the case with almost every single Gen X or millennial that I meet in the church. This is why I don't see how the church is on a sustainable path um, for for the next like for the next I don't know X amount of let's say thirty, forty, fifty years because the 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 study came out. Gosh, I wish I knew the the, the actual name of it. I can find it and put it in the description. That seventy four percent of millennials in the church think that it's wrong to share your faith with somebody. They think that is wrong. And that, that was a study that was just done this year. That it was like 73 to 74% of millennials inside of the church that are claimed to be Christians also believe that it is wrong to share your faith with somebody else. Don't, mm-hmm. don't you see that as like a huge, huge problem if that's true? That like... Yeah, so first of all, that's a big if true statistic. I would be interested in seeing the... Let me see if the, I The uh, thing. But um, yeah, I mean, that would, that would be clearly be an example of of um worldliness so what do you do about that because because this this also pertains to abortion and the conversation about abortion and i'm trying to figure out how to talk to young generations about this thing because they don't want to stick up for anything that has to go against the grain they they want to have all these like and even like pro-life gen zers they want to like post things that also like where they don't actually say anything about the, the problem. They don't say abortion is wrong or evil. They're just trying to like find ways to say things so that they don't lose friends. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, I don't know. I'm having a hard time with this, with young people yeah. trying to beat around the bush. If we continue to beat around the bush, there's just going to be millions more babies that are killed. And it, and it seems to be like so abstract from all the people my age that it doesn't really matter. And yeah. And I feel like like these arguments and all the things that we talked about in this podcast are very very good, but there's some sort of grasp or hold that that the the pro choice or just pro social credit um, philosophy has on my generation on my generation that that like no matter how logical the argument is, and I'm talking about in the church, like we're not going to say anything about it. We could believe it, but we're not going to say anything about it. Is that yeah? And that's frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. I think in some cases it's so, so there's, there's a number of things happening there, right? Obviously one of them is um, fear, just fear of man, you know? Yeah. Fear of what people will do to you. I mean, the Bible says that we will lose friends and family members will turn against us and we'll, yeah. we'll experience the destruction of our good name and the plundering of our possessions. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, we should expect to lose jobs and stuff like that. And, you know, in the, in the history of the United States, that hasn't been a big thing. You know, mm-hmm. and this is relatively recent and it's sad, I think, but it, mm-hmm. it is what it is. And and if we have been reading the Bible, we will be prepared for this. Right. right. And, and this gets to the question of, do you have faith in Jesus mm-hmm. the Christ? I mean, are, are you willing to look at the government, a state like Rome mm-hmm. or in Daniel's day, like Babylon and say, no, I will right. not worship this. Right. I just, I'm not going to do it. I won't bow. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's really hard for people who haven't been raised to be like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot for evangelicals for a while, I mean, 15 years, 20 years, maybe, um, partly because of the church growth movement, the idea was like, what can we offer you that you'll like? Yeah. You know? And so from the 1970s 
to maybe the maybe 2010 ish, there was this pretty strong sense. And this is maybe still true in some parts of the American South mm-hmm. and a few places like Bible Belty places where Christianity isn't seen as something that's evil. It's seen as either neutral or mildly good. Mm-hmm. And so if you say, okay, what can I offer you that you'll like? What kind of way of doing church? Right. right? It's not going to be super high commitment. And if it is high commitment, it's high commitment, like in financial giving or high commitment in like being part of a small group or going to retreats. It's not high commitment, like speak the truth in the culture and say, this thing is wrong. No matter what you do to me, I'm not going to back down. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not what high commitment, even if you look at like the big mega churches that, that their pastors will say, you know, our, the secret to our success is we're a high commitment church. Yeah. You're high commitment in your building campaigns, mm-hmm. but you're not high commitment in things like life and those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. Doctrinal truthfulness, authority of scripture. Right. So we just, so we've been, it's we have not caught up yet to this idea that more and more of America has been taught wrongly and falsely that religion is the problem and Christianity in particular mm-hmm. is uniquely evil, mm-hmm. right? And so now living in a living in a world in which your faith is seen as kind of neutral and maybe slightly positive in that world being just uh, trying to be a real nice person. I mean, like that's what Mormons did for like 40 years. Just be super nice and people will come. Right. But see now what we're facing is a time period where people are beginning to see Christianity is evil. If you are Christian, you are a bad person. Yeah. And not just that you're a menace and a threat to our social life together. And you're not just supposed to be, your view isn't just supposed to be rejected or even ignored, but more than that, you have to be, you have to be purged. I mean, you have to be, kicked out of the community. You have to be cut off. And so we haven't really preached a faith or prepared a faith to be that, you know? And so the reasons over the last five or six years, I've been preaching more and more on martyrdom. Oh yeah. People who experienced it, how it shows up in scripture, how suffering shows up in scripture, how, what's going to happen to our good name, all that, because I'm trying to, trying to teach people to expect things. The apostles and Jesus told us to expect. Yeah. Uh, I I want (laughs) to, Okay, so I, I looked up the statistic, and obviously people are going to think this is funny, but um, the actual statistic is 47 to 50%. I saw 74% somewhere, but still okay. 50% of people, I mean, that's still a huge chunk of, of millennials think that evangelism mm-hmm. is wrong. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I still, I, I may I mean, wonder if 25% of that is just the ignorance among millennials of what evangelism even means. It might be. They might think that, like, they might like so like they might think it's like act really harsh active proselytizing or something like that. Or they like might have some preaching and things like that. Right. Yeah. They might have right or contact evangelism, right? Like some yeah. kind of like thing in their head that they've got that's not real accurate. Yeah. You know? It, there's lots of questions in surveys where if you ask the question slightly different, it like it changes by it a lot. It changes everything. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Um Yeah, yeah. I I wanna I, I guess maybe it might just because it, it in a previous podcast, you said that like part of being young is that you just think everything sucks and, uh, or that's, I guess that's how it is for me. And that just might be the case with this, with, with, with this thing about abortion and, and about younger generations thinking about abortion. But that's why I think that's why I'm, I'm more frustrated because I try to have these conversations with people that they, they claim to be pro-life, but they don't, they're not, they're not pro-life. And 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 we haven't even we didn't even talk about and I, I think we're going to talk about in a later podcast about um, birth controls that can mm-hmm. can be ab- abortive. I mean, I think that yeah. there's a lot more than we would think that there are. Yeah, the prediction um, right now is is that more than half of abortions in the next ten years are going to be chemical based home abortions. 
Does that you mean know, that the statistics will say that they're going down? It, if you know that uh, abortions probably. are decreasing, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it'll get deceptive at that point. So, yeah, all right. So, I, I guess because we, I mean, I think we have maybe a little bit of time left. I want to ask because you talked about how you you want to talk about martyrdom, or you've talked about martyrdom more in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. In in the this scenario and talking about pro choice or pro. Pro, or I mean, pro, pro-life, talking about being people who are advocates for ch- children in the womb. How can Christians expect martyrdom and then be prepared for martyrdom and be prepared for pe- losing friends? And I talked to somebody yesterday who said that um, she has she, she had a friend who who came to her and, and was just very, very sad and crying because she, she had posted something about being pro-life and lost friends and people just like, like literally lost friends, like people just decided not to talk to her anymore. And so... Yeah. W- how can we prepare for that that type of backlash uh, in these conversations? Um, I guess maybe yeah. there isn't much preparation, but what we what can we do about it? Yeah, that I think you need to know you need to know God's word. I mean, you just need to know yeah. what God thinks about some of these things, and He tells us. And I think you need to learn to take joy in identifying with Christ and His sufferings. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have a if you don't have a good theology of becoming like Jesus in His death. So as to somehow attain the resurrection from the dead, that's from Philippians three, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that like you're going to walk with Jesus in his sufferings, and, and mainly that's in his rejections, you know, mm-hmm. in his humiliations. Mm-hmm. I also think you need to you need to realize that you live in the presence of bullies, and you have to decide what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Are you going to back down and let them control you, so that you're their slave? Or are you going to reject what they do and take whatever punches you have to take? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, I'm not for being crass or like vindictive or stupid, but, um, there's a lot of people that are trying to stay tactful and they do nothing. Yeah. You know, and I, th- I don't think that's a good way to try to be savvy. Yeah. You know? I think, I think, up, I think you start out being savvy, you end up being a coward. Yeah. I think Jordan Peterson had some, I'm going to butcher this, but some sort of quote about just how like not saying what you believe um, is, is basically like lying. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that was, that's obviously not exactly what the quote was, but look it up. I mean, I think that, 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 that was really, when I read that, I was like, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Peterson quotes Solzhenitsyn a lot and Solzhenitsyn, Hirogulag Archipelago, is pretty straightforward because he, he says, um, when other people around you are lying yeah. and you go along with it, right? You're, it no. creates a fabric of lies that everybody just lives according to and everybody's trapped inside of it. And like somebody has to say, this isn't true. This and is as the earlier, the better. If the society yeah. is moving in that direction as somebody who experienced it in Soviet society. Yeah. You know? So, so I guess to, to wrap things up here, what is some hope that can come out of this these conversations, I guess this conversation with Roe v. Wade and, and, and I mean, in some ways it's, it can be kind of a like terrible conversation to have because you're just, I I oftentimes in, in, in abortion conversations feel hopeless because I'm like, I mean, this, whoever I'm talking to, we're just never going to see eye to eye on this and, and the world is messed up and things are terrible. But is there, is there any hope for, for Christians and for people who are trying to fight for um, children in, in the womb? I guess just for Christianity in general and people. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that, um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, views on abortion have changed positively over the last thirty years. I mean, you quoted something at the beginning, but um, the the uh, the the Gallup statistics are that nineteen percent of Americans think all abortion should be illegal. Thirty-two think that they should be legal under any circumstance, and forty-eight that they should be legal under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. Well, what certain circumstances mean is a really wide swath, right? Wide. For example, I'm in that group because I think ectopic pregnancies should be able to be aborted because you sure. can't save the child and the woman's going to be killed by it, right? Yeah. Um, and so that 48 is a pretty big swath. And those are the, those are the people that could be uh, persuaded. Mm -hmm. You know, I yeah. also think that, I also think that in America, there is a certain a sense in which, I mean, there, uh, Tolkien talks about how evil devours itself, yeah. you know? And I think that, I, I think that what happens is that the bully part of the American left and right Mm -hmm. will always overplay their hands. Yeah. And I think in cancel culture and in all that that kind of yeah. behavior, I think people are going to overplay their hands and people are going to get tired of it. Real yeah. tired of it. And I think they're going to push back and it's going to get and I and and I think that I think you should I I want to be part of the people who 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 did the right thing for the right reason. Mm -hmm. Not the people who followed along because it got cool later. Mm -hmm. And so you just every Christian has to decide what they're going to do with bullies. Yeah. Every human has to do that, but especially every Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. Only the person who can, who can do what's right is free. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, unless you have anything else you wanted to say about this, I think we can conclude the, um, this yeah. abortion conversation. I mean, did you have any? I think, I think it's important to make sure that we've communicated what the general positive Christian idea is relative to children and children in the womb. So I think um, first it's important that the idea that human beings are made in God's image is something we receive through revelation. We can account for it through reason once we know it's there in revelation, but it is scripture. It's the Lord who's told us we're made in his image and valuable. And he's also the one who's of course died for us to redeem us, demonstrating his continued belief in that, um, which we could have doubted because of the fall and our sin. Mm -hmm. but he's shown that he still cares to redeem us because of that image and that value he finds in us. I think it's also important to recognize that God throughout scripture believes that children are good, that having children is good. Fertility is good. Um, he wants godly offspring. We're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. Part of filling it is this idea of being fruitful and multiplying. That's never been abrogated. God wants, it says in Malachi 2.15, godly offspring. He, sa he says in, uh, in that chapter, he says, God has not the Lord made them one, meaning the man and the woman who marry. Mm -hmm. He says in flesh and spirit, they're his. Mm -hmm. And why one? So he's saying like a man and woman who come together and get married and they come together and they become one flesh. And that's partly referring to the sexual union and intimacy in a married couple. He says, mm -hmm. and this is why does he make them one? And he ex explicitly says, Malachi says, because he, that is God, was seeking godly offspring. Mm -hmm. So guard yourself in the spirit and don't break faith with the wife of your youth. Now people say, well, that's a command against divorce, right? It's because um, continuous marriage is necessary to nurture children to be godly. Right. Yeah. Right. Because God doesn't just want offspring. He doesn't just want abandoned children. He wants children who are brought forth and are also discipled within marriage so that they can be godly offspring. So it's important to recognize that there in Ezekiel 16, 21, he says to Israel, you slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. Mm -hmm. He's talking about children who were who were killed in a method of infanticide that mm -hmm. was to the worship of idols like Molech. And then in Ezekiel 23, he says the same thing. You've committed adultery and blood is on mm -hmm. your hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children whom they bore to me. 
mm-hmm. as food for them. So he, what he says is that when we have children, those children are not just our children, they are his. Right. And because of that, he has an ownership towards them and he has his own relationship of responsibility to them mm-hmm. that we are a part of and that we can, we interfere with when we don't mm-hmm. receive them. So it's important to recognize that like, that God both tells us that all human beings are made in his image there. It's mm-hmm. not because we can exhibit characteristics that philosophers approve of, mm-hmm. but because we are human beings. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, th- secondly, that God does um, believe that parenthood constitutes a moral obligation. Like mm-hmm. people can deny that all they want, but if you're a woman and you've conceived a child, you are a mother mm-hmm. and you can, you can subdefine that philosophically however you want to, but it will never change the fact that the, that thing that's inside you, that blob of cells mm-hmm. is your son or daughter and you are that son or daughter's mother, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, and if you've had an abortion, it doesn't help you mentally or emotionally to pretend that's not true, to save yourself. Yeah. It's better to repent and mourn and cry and, and loathe that action and hate that you did it and ask for God's forgiveness and receive his justifying forgiveness mm-hmm. and be forgiven and freed, then try to feel better by denying that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also to recognize that all of our children are God's children too. Every child is also God's child mm-hmm. and should be treated as such. I think when we start to get that stuff straight, we can at least have our view straight. And then if you realize that the the moral propositions put forward by secular philosophers are rational. There's nothing like wrong with them per se as like meaningful statements, but they don't, the fact that they state them and they seem reasonable doesn't make them morally true in any meaningful sense. It doesn't make them obligatory. It doesn't make them the criteria we should use mm-hmm. and being able to see through some of that stuff. So it sounds very academic and intelligent and rational mm-hmm. is necessary. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, and I think that that's, that's really necessary right now because we have, a lot of philosophies that are trying to say that the thing that's right in front of your eyes is not what you see. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that person that you say that you know is a man, you're supposed to say that's a woman. Right. This thing that's in the, a woman's uterus growing there that you know is a child, mm-hmm. you're supposed to say and believe that's something else. And right. all of these are so that we can morally and personally construct our society around the idolatry of expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would also say, like, do some research on expressive individuals so you don't really know what it is. Because when you understand how it's a form of this sort of Rousseauian romanticism, you'll, you'll see how the whole undergirding philosophy has gone awry. Mm-hmm. And then the little arguments that would throw you day to day begin to lose their weight. Yeah. And you can be, because otherwise what will happen is if you don't get to the bottom of the philosophy and you can see the, like the, just the, the sewer of expressive individualism at the bottom of it. Yeah. All these little arguments day in and day out will have an increasing amount of weight on you and they'll create psychologically a plausibility structure where you'll believe, where you'll think they're more and more believable and you'll think Mm -hmm. the gospel is less and less believable. And that's not a rational process. It's an emotional psychological process. If you see that expressive individualism is a sewer full of crap Mm -hmm. and you see that God making us in his image is a formative reality for what mm-hmm. we are as human beings. And we start treating each other with love in, in accordance with that. You will begin to see that this other view is just bull. Mm-hmm. And it, it'll, it'll have less and less weight emotionally mm-hmm. and philosophically. And the truth of the gospel and the reality of God and what a human person is and how we should treat each other will have more and more weight. And that's right. where we'll begin to be set free, even in the midst of all the false philosophies around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think also to conclude, I think it would be, it's important to say, um, for the people who listened to this and and listened through it and and, and didn't like the things that were said, I think it's imp- I think it's okay for them to reach out to Nick and 
I mean, I'm sure you'd be glad to have conversations with further conversations with people um, or just people, not, not, not even people that disagree, people who just feel bad about if they had an abortion or something like that, like you'd be willing to talk to them. Um, but I, but I also do want to say for people who listen to this and um, they agree with everything. Uh, I was talking with somebody yesterday about podcasting and, and some of the dangers of it. And one of the dangers can be the kind of uh, what I consider to be like the, the Ben Shapiro effect where somebody will listen to something that Ben Shapiro says, and he's very smart. And then they'll think that they can use that as a weapon against other people uh, without actually fully understanding what Ben Shapiro was saying into its depths. And so um, I think that for people who listen to this and agree with it, I I don't think that what should be, what was said on these last two podcasts should be used as any form of a weapon against people. I think that it it should be go to go figure out a way that you can like get involved and volunteer, go go to care night. If you live in Madison and see if you can volunteer in in any way, or Mm -hmm. just find people, or I don't know if you know anybody who's had an abortion or, whatever, do the best that you can to, to use this information as a way to actually love them and care about them and not to just yeah. destroy people who d- disagree with you. Yeah. yeah. When you talk to people about abortion, you assume the person you're talking to has had one or facilitated and approved of one being done and assume yeah. that they're emotionally bound up in it that way and how you talk to them because yeah. most people have in some way right. or another. Yeah. 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 Kind of like, kind of like Paul with how he was just killing Christians and things. Um, so um anyways with that being said i think we'll close this one out um you know make sure you uh like subscribe share uh follow give us a five star rating if you enjoyed this um and you join us next week um and where do they send questions they can send questions to optive network at gmail.com and there's the, and they can send them to like Facebook and to the Instagram and to the website, uh, optivenetwork.com. Yeah, you can send us TikToks or YouTube videos <laughs> or stuff with arguments true. we didn't talk about that you yeah. wonder if there's answers to. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And and maybe later on in the summer or something, we'll have to come back to this if we get enough uh, responses. So anyways, thanks for listening and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage in a Question. Thank you.